If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Courage comes in many, many different forms. They are not all of them obvious. You know, they're not always the ability to go onto a battlefield and kill people. There are there are people in this story who exhibit bravery of a very different sort, some of whom do it unarmed. That was Ben McIntyre discussing the SAS in the Second World War. Hitler used drugs to keep his tunnel vision and to, to, to stay on track. And this staying on track at one point became a problem for the Nazi war effort because staying on track meant uh, the downfall and meant uh, total defeat. And that was Norman Orla talking about the use of drugs in the Third Reich. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of November 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. First up this week is Ben McIntyre, a journalist, best-selling author and broadcaster who's written a number of acclaimed books on the Second World War. His latest is SAS Rogue Heroes, which is the first ever authorised history of the Special Air Service in the conflict. The book accompanies his upcoming BBC Two series, which is due to be broadcast early in 2017. I met up with Ben at the offices of his publisher Penguin in London a little while back, and here's what he had to say. Why have these SAS files remained secret for so many years? The SAS is still the most secretive unit in the British Army. I mean, they pride themselves on maintaining a kind of mystique and a secrecy well, there are really two reasons for that. One is that it is for operational reasons. They do not want or have not wanted hitherto any evidence to come out about the techniques and the methods and the the way they do operations. So there's a good operational reason. But there's also a kind of, uh, as it were, a more public-facing reason for keeping silent, which is that, you know, they cultivate their mystique. I mean, like MI5 and MI6, it's very useful to the regiment to be secretive and to have this kind of aura of kind of covert action surrounding them. So there are two there are two very good reasons. On the other hand, I think the decision to open up the archives to me for the first time indicates that like MI5 and MI6, they have come to the conclusion that the regiment and history and the public in general are better served by knowing what actually happened than by allowing mythology to kind of take over from reality. And so how will what you discovered in the archives, do you think, change our understanding of the wartime SAS? Well, there are very many areas of it that struck me as extraordinary. I mean, we have a sort of modern image of the SAS as a kind of ruthless, efficient, physically very testing um, unit. And those are all true of the modern SAS. But the SAS in its inception during the war was amateur. Things went very right for the unit uh, at times, but also spectacularly wrong at others. They were not sort of 
over-muscled exemplars of sort of, you know, butch masculinity in all cases. I mean, the man who founded the SAS, David Sterling, was about as far as you could get from a kind of, um, from a sort of muscled warrior. He was sort of six foot three and, and actually physically not very robust at all. He was just a very brilliant leader of men and who had a, one fantastically good idea and changed the, the way war is run. So, um, it, you know, the, the, the archive, I think, will cast, and I hope the book will cast, a, a pretty new light on, on what the SAS is and perhaps also, I hope, the qualities that go into this kind of military action because we associate the SAS, I think, very much with sort of physical military prowess, and that's that's absolutely right. But there's a kind of mental toughness to the people who founded the SAS that is pretty unique, actually. Uh, they they are an interesting combination of qualities, and, and not all of them expected. Courage comes in, I've sort of found in the course of this book, courage comes in many, many different forms, and it's they are not all of them obvious you know they're not always the ability to go onto a battlefield and kill people there are there are people in this story who who exhibit bravery of a very different sort some of whom do it unarmed do you think you had to be even more brave to be in the SAS than you would be to be a normal second world war soldier did it take an extra level of courage courage is so hard to define isn't it whether it took an extra level level of courage or a certain sort of martial madness i mean some of the people in the sas were borderline sort of psychotic i mean there were there are people in here who would not have fitted into a normal army um, and indeed as one uh, character says you know they were the sweepings of the of the public schools and the prisons they were people who did not fit into the normal military shape and so is that bravery? Yeah, yes. I mean, they were extraordinarily courageous. They were doing things uh, at a level of risk that very few other soldiers were doing. But, but, but in a way, they did it, some of them, because that's what they like doing. It's not all about duty and honour and those other things that we associate with courage. They're, a lot of the people in this unit enjoyed the sort of hand-to-hand, face-to-face secretive, highly perilous nature of what they were up to. And boy, was it perilous. I mean, the average life expectancy of, of an SAS people was very short. And the SAS's origins are quite unusual, almost a bit fortuitous. Could the SAS only really have happened in that particular circumstance at that particular time? Yes, I think that's exactly right. I, I, and luck played a huge part. Um, I mean, the initial operation that the SAS carried out, I mean, the whole idea for the SAS came to David Sterling um, while he was lying in bed um, in, a, in a hospital in, in Cairo, having carried out a, a hopeless parachute jump where he and, and sort of a handful of others had managed to get hold, I think they're Technically, they had actually, in fact, stolen a group of parachutes, which they attached to themselves and, and actually just jumped out of a plane. And Sterling snagged his parachute on the back of the plane. And so he, he didn't so much sort of float to earth as plummet um, and hit the ground very, very hard, injured his back very badly. And was while lying in bed, uh, recovering from this, he came up with the idea of parachuting behind the lines in, in, the, in the North African campaign. Um, with the idea of sneaking up onto airfields 
blowing up aeroplanes and then running away, effectively, running away back into the desert. Um, this was the kind of warfare that a lot of people in the top brass of the military thought was extremely, you know, not only unconventional, but not really cricket. You know, so he faced a, he faced a lot of opposition from, from within as well. So, yes, I mean, it, it, I don't think it could have happened at any other point or with any other person leading it. And how important do you think it was for the SAS that Churchill quite early on got on board, found out about it and had quite a positive view towards it? I think it's pretty clear that the SAS would not have survived if Churchill had not, first of all, learned about it from his son Randolph, who was in the SAS briefly, and secondly, adopted the regiment as a kind of, not a mascot exactly, but as a as something very well worth backing up. I mean, and again, it was sort of pretty fortuitous the way that happened. I mean, there were two elements to it, really. The first was that Randolph Churchill, who was, again, a fairly unlikely soldier, really, he was very overweight, heavy drinker, uh, had been taken by Sterling on a, a, a hopelessly failed raid into Benghazi, but had become so excited by this uh, that he'd written to his father describing in detail what had happened. And those letters are, are in the archive and um, they're extraordinary in which he sort of describes moment by moment to, to Winston Churchill what happened. And, and Sterling actually had calculated that this might happen. He knew that, that Radolf Churchill was likely to kind of enjoy the kind of daring do end of what was going on. And Churchill... Churchill Pear absolutely loved it. I mean, became completely... And then the second element was that that on his way to see Stalin, Churchill stopped off in Cairo and invited Sterling to dinner and they got on incredibly well, at the end of which Sterling... And again, these are documents that are actually in the SAS archive. At the end of this dinner, Churchill's secretary then sent a note to Sterling saying, tell us, you know, expand on what you've been talking to the Prime Minister about. And Sterling wrote this memo that is really a kind of blueprint for what the SAS would become. And it was a straight power grab, really. I mean, Sterling in it, Sterling more or less openly says, get rid of all other special forces, put them all under my command, um, and we'll, we'll have a party. And that is duly what happened. And also the SAS, the first operation they did was a complete disaster. So do you think they were quite fortunate to be able to carry on after that? I think it was astonishing, well, two elements, to Operation Squatter, which was the first disastrous parachute jump. Uh, 55, I think I've got these numbers right, 55 jumped into the desert, only 23 came back. I mean, it was an absolute calamity. It should never have been allowed to happen. I mean, they sh Sterling should have called it off. The weather was so bad for this parachute jump that really, I mean, it was, it was, it was almost a suicide mission. So they should have stopped it. Um... And it's remarkable that after this failure, the unit was not disbanded. Again, it came down really to chance. Um, and Sterling rather carefully hid the full scale of, of what had gone wrong uh, and got away with it. So yet again, you know, luck played a huge part in the kind of, in the survival of the SAS itself. Operation Squatter is, a, is an extraordinary story, really, because... I mean, the men taking part in it had a very good idea, I think, of just how unlikely it was to work out. And yet they did it anyway. And that, as I said at the beginning, is a sort of rare form of courage. But then some of their later raids actually in the desert were spectacularly successful. Considering the sort of incredible odds they were fighting against, how do you think they were able to achieve such success with so few people? Well, it was partly tactical. It was partly extraordinarily good training. Um, Jock Lewis, who is one of the sort of forgotten heroes of the SAS, who was the first sort of training officer, who was a sort of tough-minded, physically very robust on Martinet, who kind of put the SAS through their paces, achieved a level of sort of physical 
resilience that would otherwise have been impossible. So that's part of it. Um, the second is they they worked out very very brilliant tactics of how to do this stuff. I mean, they, they teamed up with the Long Range Desert Group, which was the, the sort of reconnaissance unit that was carrying out intelligence operations in the desert. And they became, in Sterling's words, the sort of Libyan taxi service who would ferry the units of attackers really quite close to the airfields. They would slip on, uh, slip onto the airfields under cover of darkness. The, the element of surprise was absolutely critical to it. And, and they were, as you say, extraordinarily effective. I mean, they destroyed hundreds of planes. But perhaps even more than that, they had a psychological impact uh, that is obviously impossible to measure, but undoubtedly played a very important part in the in the North African campaign, both in terms of encouraging allied morale at a time when it was at a very low ebb, when, when the war was anything but one. Um, here were these kind of piratical desert raiders in their sort of turbans and their jeeps charging off to kind of carry out venture story raids. And that really had a pretty dramatic, even melodramatic impact on everyday soldiers. And the myths about the SAS and the myths and the legends began to sort of spread through the ranks very, very quickly. Sterling became known as the Phantom Major. There's all sorts of sort of mythology that surrounded it. But on the other side, the same is also true because clearly the SAS had a profound impact on Axis military morale. Again, the sort of stories about what he was up to spread through sort of German and Italian ranks. And it kept the, the soldiers in those airfields and, and behind the lines in a state of permanent fear, really, because they never knew when the next attack was going to come. And it tied up, you know, hundreds and thousands of soldiers who were kind of kept back from the front line in order to defend against attacks that nobody knew where they were coming from because you couldn't police the desert. You couldn't work out where Sterling was hiding out. And so the other thing that's really impressive is how they managed to cope with these desert conditions. You know, for large periods of time, they, they did the kind of things that you'd imagine modern-day explorers do. I mean, how did they manage to live in this really hostile environment? Well, it was, I mean, it is, you know, the Libyan desert is one of the most hostile places on Earth. It is, it, is, it is not intended for human habitation. And they worked out techniques of survival. I mean, it was really tough. You know, they would spend months at a time holed up in sort of desert caves and in and in tents in the middle of the desert under camouflage and it was it was extremely demanding and it had it took a psychological toll too it's not just a physical one i think people were you know a certain sort of desert madness began to kick in after a while but then also as always in war and indeed in any any kind of conflict situation the SAS developed a very particular kind of camaraderie and esprit de corps, and they they developed their own rituals, their own songs. Indeed, they're almost their own language for sort of talking about desert life. They had their own vocabulary for the lice and the sun and the heat and the dust and the sand. And it was all done with a sort of strange kind of very British sense of humour as well. I think they sort of mocked their own hardships in a way that is that was at the time very representative of a certain sort of military thinking. And then as the SAS grew at this time, how did they select the new recruits or what kind of people were joining the regiment? Well, Sterling was very clear about the sort of people he wanted in the SAS. He did not want kind of people who were just in there for the excitement and, and the killing. He wanted people who were able to think laterally. He wanted people who were able 
to adapt to changing situations very quickly because you can go in with a plan to blow up an airfield, but if the planes aren't where you think they're going to be or there are more guards on them, then you, you know you have to be able to kind of move and 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 change. So he was looking for people with a kind of particular kind of mental resilience, I think, as well as as well as a sort of physical robustness to be able to get through it. So they were. A, a, he was very specific about the list of qualities that he wanted and needed. Regiment did expand hugely. I mean, having started with about fifty soldiers by the end of the war, it was it was more than three thousand strong. It was it was became and it became a very important part of Allied tactical thinking and indeed strategic thinking in the latter part of the war. I mean, the SAS played a very important part in in occupied France in in slowing down the Panzer divisions that were that were attempting to to get to the Normandy beachheads to to repel the D-Day invasion. So again, they are both a psychological and a practical force in the Second World War whose impact has probably never properly been explored before. By the time the war comes to Europe, by the time the SAS come to Europe, how different a regiment is it from the group that was fighting in the desert? They did transform over time, just as the war itself evolved over time. I mean, there's an interesting sort of narrative arc, in a way, to the story of the SAS during the Second World War, because what began, in a way, as a kind of very exciting adventure... Uh, a sort of gentleman's war was how Rommel described the sort of North African campaign. The rules of war applied, you know, prisoners were taken, prisoners were released, prisoners were exchanged, you know, civilians were not involved, there were no partisans, there wasn't that kind of... That changes in the course of war, uh, and it changed very much for the SAS, who by the end of the war in occupied France are dealing with civilians, collaborators, partisans, people they can trust, people they can't trust, Uh, and it becomes a much darker sort of war... Hitler famously issued his commando order, which was that any parachutists, as he called them, but that actually meant anybody found behind the lines operating uh, on a military basis was to be treated as a spy and executed, summarily executed without trial. That was really a death sentence on the SAS. It didn't, as far as I can work out, stop anybody from actually going, but it meant that they were facing execution by the SAS and and scores, if not hundreds, of SAS people were executed in the, in the course of the campaign. And there are incidents in which the SAS, perhaps unsurprisingly, were less than entirely tied down by the normal conventional rules of war. There are occasions when individuals were shot out of hand. There are occasions when revenge was taken. There are many fewer than I expected to find, in fact, but that is one of the things that happens in war. So you have, it does go from a sort of, if there could be such a thing, a, an almost sort of carefree approach to war at the beginning, which is what Sterling and his people had, to something very, very much darker and grimmer and tougher by the end of the war in 1945. And by the time the SAS gets to Europe, is it still predominantly a British force? Because I, I believe there's some other nationalities that become involved by this Yes, time. no, it becomes a sort of international force, particularly the French. You know, the French SAS, again, a story um, that has really not been properly explored before in English. The French SAS regiments played an absolutely critical part. And these were sort of free French forces who had, you know, got out of, of, of occupied France um, and volunteered for sort of uh, elite special forces combat. And then there was a Greek sacred squadron who were also, you know, uh, members of the, of the sort of free Greek army who, who formed a unit. There was a Belgian SAS, who absolutely vital as well. And there were lots of soldiers within the British elements of the SAS who were from Australia, New Zealand, 
Rhodesia as it was then, South Africa there. So they were, they were very much a mixed force, absolutely. And how different was the kind of operations the SAS were doing in Europe compared to what they've been doing in the desert? The operations in Europe were different. In the sort of middle period of the SAS, not entirely successfully, the SAS was transformed into a raiding squadron. Uh, it ceased to do what it had done in the initial part and would again do in the later part of the war, which was operating covertly behind the lines. That's what the SAS does very well, is small units of highly trained, effectively guerrilla fighters that go in, coordinate with the resistance, sabotage, intelligence. That, that's really where the SAS prospers. In the middle part of the war, they became a raiding squadron, as I said, under Paddy Main, and, and they were really used as sort of frontline shock troops, which they were very good at, but that isn't what the SAS was about. That's not why they were founded. Um, and indeed, one of the worst disasters that happened to the SAS happened during the, um, the Battle for Termoli, which is on the Adriatic coast of Italy, when, when a huge number of SAS were killed. And it was really not what they were invented to do. They shouldn't, I think, have really been deployed that way. What kind of impact do you think, I know it's very hard to quantify, but what kind of impact did the SAS have on the war as a whole? Did they, did they shorten the war? Did they reduce allowed casualties? Is there any way of knowing these things? It's almost impossible to put a figure or a time on, on these things. I mean, what, what does one unit do? I think what has been underestimated hitherto is the extent to which SAS, at a pivotal moment of the war, provided hope. Their mystique, their legend, their mystery... Even their kind of appearance, these sort of bearded, sort of swashbuckling ruffians in, in kind of, you know, uh, their own made-up uniforms, really. I mean, there's a wonderful photograph actually on the cover of the book where a group of SAS are posing for the camera, and they look exactly like a particularly kind of uh, ruffianly rock band preparing to go on stage. They're very aware of their own kind of romantic mystique. And I think that had a huge effect. Well, we know it had a huge effect on, on Allied morale at a low moment of the war. And materially, practically, yes, you know, they tied up many, many troops. They just, Paddy Main alone, who was the sort of legendary deputy commander of the SAS and then latterly the commander of the SAS, destroyed more planes on his own than any single Allied pilot you know i mean so so the, the level of destruction behind the lines was enormous and again i suppose the third element is the the amount of um panic that the sas managed to sort of imbue in 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 the axis forces in in north africa and then again in in occupied france was was immense i mean perhaps the most demonstrable single impact in the latter part of the war is that the sas several operations were aimed at slowing down the das reich panzer division that was heading up north through central france in order to to join the, force, the German forces in the north trying to repel the Normandy invasion. Well, the sabotage operations, Bull Basket and Hansworth, and the slowing down that the SAS was doing there clearly had a demonstrable effect on slowing down that extremely effective and very brutal panzer division. How do you measure that? You can't. It's, it's like all things in war, but uh, it's clear that, that, that it did have an impact. You mentioned earlier about how the war became darker as they got into Europe, and I guess the epitome of that is when some members of the SAS actually arrived at Bergen-Belsen. What impact did that have on the people involved when they, I think, were the first on the scene of this horrendous place? Well, the, the Bergen-Belsen moment is really the kind of 
in a way, the closing chapter of the war. And really purely by accident, um, the SAS were, were, were motoring north through, through, through Germany, heading for Berlin. When they actually smelled Bergen-Belsen, the, the smell of it was what first alerted them to, that there was something in the forest. And the descriptions of, of what happened are extraordinary. I mean, they drove through the open gates of Bergen-Belsen with rather listless SS soldiers sort of standing around, eyeing them, and, and came upon a scene of, of unbelievable horror. What struck me as interesting about that moment, I mean, there are many elements of it that were, that were extraordinary, but that given what the SAS had been through during the war, given that so many of their own men had been murdered by the SS as a result of Hitler's commando order, you might have expected the SAS to stride into Bergen-Belsen, take one look at what was happening and begin executing the SS guards that were there. I mean, the commandant amazingly turned up and, and greeted the head of the, the, this little SAS unit there as if he was sort of op- delighted to be opening up the camp as a sort of, you know, welcome to, welcome to this scene. And it, it amazed me. I mean, there was, a, there was a clearly a moment when the SAS, some of the troopers were ready to start just opening fire. And the leader of the group, a man called John Tonkin, stopped them, said, you, you can't do this. He, he told the head of the, the commandant of the camp that he was under arrest. All the rest of the SS people were rounded up and, and, and incarcerated, but they weren't murdered. They weren't killed. And I, I, I think of that as a sort of moment of sort of rare civilization, really, in a very uncivilized war. Um, you would have expected the SAS, with perhaps some reason, to have taken immediate and brutal revenge. And the fact that they didn't perhaps is a sort of defining moment in the kind of contrast between the two elite forces of that war, the SS and the SAS. You mentioned a couple of people already, but were there any characters from the SAS who really stood out for you when you were researching this book? I had expected to be writing a, a, a sort of military account. Really, I think what I've ended up writing is a sort of series of sort of psychological profiles in some ways of, or even sort of mini biographies of a group of very, very extraordinary people. I mean, there's David Sterling, who I've alluded to already, but but Paddy Main is another extraordinary man. He was an international rugby player. He was a man of, of raw temper. He had a volcanic kind of explosive fury boiling inside him. He was capable of extreme violence, not just on the battlefield, but actually to his messmates, particularly when he'd had a drink or two. But he would end up as one of the most decorated soldiers of the Second World War. He had a kind of adamantine bravery that was quite extraordinary and and luck he had an extraordinary irish luck that allowed him to get through and and he was again a sort of psychological pillar for the sas i mean people would follow him into battle that they would not have followed other people and then there are you know there are there are other much more i mean one of my favorite characters really is a doctor a man called malcolm pladel who wrote the most wonderful account of being in the desert who is a very earnest, was a very earnest, sensitive, clever, unarmed, extraordinarily courageous, but was in the teeth of battle, but brought with him a, a rather sort of sensitive and humane attitude towards what was not a sensitive or humane war. And it's those perspectives, in a way, that I find most interesting, really, about the SAS, is that it's not a war of black and white characters. It's not a war of sort of straightforward military heroism, and I've used the word hero in the title, but heroism to me covers a a wide 
gamut of different sorts of behaviour and heroism and courage and bravery come in very different packages and um, and very unexpected and unlikely shapes. Once the war was over, how did these people who'd fought in such an unusual, sort of intense type of warfare, how did they cope back in civilian life? Well, many did not cope at all, uh, is, the, is the short and rather sad answer. I think war of this extreme sort, of this so much personal stress was placed on these people. I mean, now we would call it post-traumatic stress disorder. There wasn't really a name for it then. It wasn't quite shell shock exactly. But even in truth, even before the end of the war, the SAS attracted a particularly febrile sort of personality. People who were not bad word to use, but who were not sort of normal. Many of them didn't really fit into civilian life before the war. And afterwards, many of them, I mean, many adjusted perfectly well and went, went back into, into normal civilian life, but many did not. I mean, many took to drink. Paddy Main himself died very young, uh, driving his car into a car accident in, in Northern Ireland. Um, I've never been quite sure that David Sterling himself adjusted back into civilian life. He wasn't really made for that sort of world. But yet, you know, they, they maintained this esprit de corps. They all used to meet regularly after the war, I think. But they lived, they sort of lived, as many old soldiers do, they kind of lived on the memories of what had happened to them during the war. And one has to bear in mind that they were still heartbreakingly young when the war ended. I mean, most of them were still in their 20s or very early 30s by the time it was all over. So the rest of their lives were ahead of them. And of course, nothing in terms of excitement and adrenaline and and simple colour in civilian 1950s Britain could really measure up I mean, many, some of them stayed within the, the unit. I mean, when the, S, the SAS was disbanded, but then reformed, and, and a, a large number of them rejoined the SAS, and can, sort of in a way continued where they'd left off. But the story of old soldiers is, is, is often not a very happy one. And how much of the wartime SAS do you think remains, firstly, in the British SAS and kind of special forces around the world these days? The SAS during war, and it's no exaggeration to say this, invented a new sort of warfare. I mean, up until this time, pretty much military thinking ran along traditional lines. Two large armies collide on a battlefield and, you know, one beats the other and that's the end of the story. Sterling really rewrote the rules of that. There'd been attempts to do this sort of thing before, but he was the first one really to put it systematically on paper. And all special forces around the world really owed there being to that inheritance. I mean, very specifically, Delta Force in the States was directly modelled on the SAS. And there are special forces, special air services around the world that are directly modelled on it. And this is, in lots of ways, the face of modern warfare in, in Syria, in Iraq, in Libya now, back where it all began. These sorts of methods, you know, the US... Defence Secretary actually stated this quite categorically recently that, you know, they are using special forces methods to prosecute war. It is no longer a a sort of two-dimensional war on the battlefield. It's a war fought in secret, in covert ways, often pretty ruthlessly behind the lines. And and, and the quote from the the Defence Secretary, the US Defence Secretary, was, you know, we don't want these people to sleep well at night. We don't want them to know when we're coming through the window. That is a precise echo of the philosophy that David Sterling used to such dramatic effect in the Second World War. That was Ben McIntyre. 
SAS Rogue Heroes, The Authorised Wartime History, is out now in the UK, published by Viking. In the US, it's also on sale, under the title of Rogue Heroes, and published by Crown. And you can read a version of this interview in the December edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's issue, there are articles on Edward I, Medieval Cities, Emma Hamilton, and the murder of Rasputin. You can get hold of our December issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new UK subscribers. You can save up to 33% on the shop price and get a choice of free book, including Ben McIntyre's new history of the SAS. To take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP210. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Sticking with our Second World War theme, our next interview this week is with the author Norman Orler, whose new book, Blitzed, about drug use in the Third Reich, has caused a sensation, being reported in many news outlets around the world. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Norman a little while back to find out more. So, Norman, your your book discusses um, drug taking at the highest and lowest levels of Nazi Germany. Um, just how prevalent was drug taking in, in the wider German population at the time? The drug taking was quite prevalent in the wider German population. Um, it was not a top down approach, as you might expect in a dictatorship, let's say uh, the government tells the people to take all these drugs uh, to, to have a certain effect. Um, like we can, I suppose, see it uh, in, in certain dystopian novels like uh, Brave New World in 1984. This was quite a different uh, scenario. Um, the German population in the late 30s, before the war started, discovered um, 
a drug, which was not seen as a drug at the time because it was a legal medication that you could get in any pharmacy. And this was called pervitine, pervitine. Uh, it contained pure methamphetamine, which we today would call crystal meth. Uh, so at the time, this was not um, this was not seen as a drug, but it was taken against all sorts of little um, illnesses uh, like or, or against depression or against fatigue or people weren't really sure against what it was so they, they, they took it basically against or for everything. I mean you, I mean, you mentioned even children were taking taking sort of heroin and cough syrup um, in, at this time to sort of to help them sleep. We have to understand that um, drugs are always a concept that society makes up. So in the beginning when substances are discovered, uh, not necessarily is it known or is it are they are they talked about in the public discourse or in the spe- specialist discourse as as a, as a dangerous drug. So we can see I examined and blitz, blitzed a little bit the um the genesis of the pharmaceutical industry as we know it today and how drugs came about and we can see that quite a few of the drugs that we know today like heroin, um cocaine, um even MDMA were um, inventions of the time in Germany. I mean, cocaine was uh, was a patent by a German company, to be more precise. But heroin was a, a designer drug found by the same chemist for the company Bayer, uh, who found aspirin uh, within a, a span of ten days. There was a time in Germany when many drugs or medications were invented, and for example, in the beginning the Bayer heads uh, weren't sure what heroin is good for. So they suggested uh, that it might be good also for children as a cough syrup or for children to be able to sleep better. Only later it was discovered um, uh, that it was quite an addictive, possibly dangerous drug. What sources have you been have you been looking at to, to find this sort of information out? The first source that I looked at was the... Um, um, the estate of Theo Morel, which is uh, who, who was the personal physician of Hitler, I found his notes in the F- Federal Archives of Koblenz in Western Germany, and they give a very detailed account of his relationship to Hitler and the medications he administered Hitler. Um, this this is a, this is obviously a, a main focus of my book, but the other main focus is the abuse of methamphetamine by the German army and. Um, this was this is all stored in Freiburg, also in the south of Germany, where the military archive of Germany is located. And there you can see very well documented how methamphetamine was discovered for the Wehrmacht, who was responsible for it, how it was distributed among the troops, at what time, uh, how many dosages were distributed, and how this was tied in with military strategy. So this wasn't really it wasn't a case of the of the regime just turning a blind eye to to it. They were actually physically supplying troops with with this drug. In the attack on Poland, which went which then prompted the Second World War, um, there was one professor who was responsible for performance enhancement in the Wehrmacht. Uh, I call him the Teutonic uh, Q of James Bond, uh, but he was he was more boring and had less humor, I suppose. But he was he could see that the German troops in Poland were using pervitine in order to increase their fighting capabilities. Uh, he requested reports from medical officers and they were sent back to him to Berlin. And he worked with these reports and then suggested that in the next campaign, which was the one against France and uh, I guess Great Britain, uh, the campaign in the West, that pervitine should be officially supplied to the troops. And this was done 
this was done and it was uh, manifested by the so-called stimulant decree, which was issued uh, on the 12th of April 1940, a few weeks before the attack. Uh, it, it says explicitly um, how many pills this, a soldier should take and what distance of time uh, the soldier should take it, what are the, what are the effects, what are the side effects. And uh, between that, the issuing of that decree on April 12, 1940, and the attack on the West on May 10, 1940, uh, in those couple of weeks, 35 million dosages were um, being distributed to the troops. And then I looked very carefully of, uh, into how were they distributed and how did that tie in uh, with the strategy that Churchill later called the sickle cut. I mean, what sort of effect would this drug have had on, on soldiers? What would you actually have seen um, that would make you think that, that these soldiers were, were taking this pervertine? Well, the records are pretty clear because when Ranke, this professor, uh, moves to the front to examine how much of his pervertine, because he kind of discovered it for the Wehrmacht, was actually being used. Uh, he spoke to the leading medical officers of uh, the leading tank generals who were advancing this campaign, the so-called Blitzkrieg inventors. I'm talking about General Rommel, Guderian, and the, the whole tank troop, Kleist. They, 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 tell, they, they speak with Rank and tell him very explicitly uh, how these thousands and thousands of pills were distributed and what effects they had. Basically, they had two effects. One of one of them, and that the two major effects for fighting capabilities. The first one is they reduce fear in the combat situation. This was uh, established in experiments that were done before, when while, while there was still peace, that the Wehrmacht did experiments and also German universities. They found out if you take methamphetamine, your fear level is lowered. Uh, this was a decisive advantage in battle. There was there's the first battle in Belgium in a village called Matelange, where the Germans uh, storm uh, through an open field towards uh, a Belgian uh, a kind of fortress, and this was completely untypical uh, behavior because they were fully exposed to the Belgian fire. But the Belgians got so scared of these fearless Germans that they themselves uh, started running away. So this was important in establishing this rumor about the Wehrmacht being totally fearless, unbeatable, uh, the best army in the world. Um, this, um, my research shows that this pervertine helped them to achieve that state. Um, the other, the second big effect of the pervertine, the methamphetamine, is that it decreases the need for sleep uh, in the first days and weeks of taking. So we must understand that the blitzkrieg against France uh, worked. The strategy said it, this will work if we can reach the French border city of Sedan within three days and three nights. Uh, this is only possible if the troops don't stop, if they rush through. Uh, Churchill said this is impossible. He said this to his French uh, colleague uh, in, in Paris the Ger after the first day in the great advance of the German army. He said the Germans will have to stop. Every human being, every army, every organism has to stop, but they, the, the Germans uh, removed that uh, need for stopping for the first three days. And there's the famous order by Guderian, uh, the, the, the tank general, Panzergeneral Guderian. He said to his men, I request from you to stay awake for three days and three nights. And after the campaign, which led to this uh, victory of Germany, which no one expected, uh, he said, and you actually managed to stay awake for 17 days and nights. I mean, that's that's just incredible, isn't it, when you think of it? It is incredible. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, I don't think they were all awake for 17 days and, and 17 nights, but you can see that the Blitzkrieg strategy 
they were awake quite a long time. I mean, maybe Guderian was exaggerating, but you can very clearly see that the Blitzkrieg strategy is tied in uh, with the uh, ability to use a chemically produced very potent drug in order to combat the enemy number one of the soldier, and that is always sleep and fatigue. And the French, for example, uh, they they relied on a very different drug. They relied namely on red wine. In the First World War, there was this myth that red wine saved the French nation because they drank it and it lifted their spirits. And we can also see that the British uh, armed forces have relied on alcohol for a long time. If we just look at the at the at the fleet uh, being dependent on 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 the daily rum ra- ration. So in this World War Two, uh, when in the Second World War, when Germany attacks France. Um, 3,500 trucks full of red wine are being shipped to the French troops, to the, to the defending French troops. And every French soldier received three quarters of a liter per day uh, in, in combat. So we can, we can see how this would affect a soldier very differently than uh, using methamphetamine, which is, just turns you into a fearless, sleepless uh, a kind of fighting machine while Three quarters of a liter of red wine makes you a little bit drowsy towards the evening. And I'm not saying that the drugs decided this campaign, but I can I show in Blitz how the drugs are adding to what is happening on the ground and how we cannot understand what is happening on the ground if we do not take this factor into consideration. Do you think the Allies realize that, that the level of drug use that was being used in the German army, it must be pretty terrifying you know you have Churchill saying oh, it can never happen in three days and then they do um you know do we know w- what they thought they were absolutely terrified of these uh, unexplicable behavior patterns uh, of the Germans because um the tank generals just couldn't be stopped anymore they uh, even for Hitler it was a problem because uh, there, there was a point when he didn't understand his own war anymore he was sitting in his bunker uh, in, in the Felsen Nest, not in the Berlin bunker yet, but in, in a different bunker. He loved bunkers. So he's sitting in, in his in his headquarter bunker and uh, his troops are just running through France, first through Belgium and then to France. And they, uh, they the Blitzkrieg kind of made itself while it was happening. So it was a surprise for everyone what happened on the, on, on the, on the field and in the terrain. Um, in the beginning, uh, the Allied, the Western Allies had no idea what's going on. And um, later in the battle, over Britain, or Battle of Britain, I'm not sure how you how you call it in Great Britain, um, when the Royal Air Force was fighting the German Luftwaffe and the first German Luftwaffe pilots were being shot down over uh, Great Britain, pervitin pills were found in the planes and then the, the, the Royal British Air Force um, made tests themselves. Uh, we, there was a special doctor that was responsible for flying with pilots and giving them Benzedrine, which is an American amphetamine uh, medication and methamphetamine. And then he decided for British pilots, it's better to use amphetamines, amphetamines, basically what we know as speed today. So we can see that the British uh, fighters learned from the Nazi uh, abuse of drugs. And then we're also the, the British army was also incorporating drugs a bit later in the war because it took them time to realize so uh, and and uh, but then they they also did and you we can we can basically see that war and drugs are always connected. Hmm. I mean, how how easy was it to to come by these drugs? I mean, they, you say they were manufactured in in Germany, but as the as the war went on and, and the Allied bombing kind of got more, um, how easy was it to kind of keep this supply going? Well, one of the um, 
one of the sales, uh, uh, one of the advantages that Temla, the factory, that the, the company that produced pervitin, uh, um, uh, pointed out to the German Wehrmacht was that methamphetamine can be produced with very little. And we can see, we, we all know the TV series Breaking Bad, where uh, the, the people in, I mean, on the, the facts in, in the United States, where a lot of crystal meth being produced, is you don't need that much. It's not that hard. It is not easy, you know, but it, it can be done. And um, I looked at um, the German war economy very closely, and chemical factories had to be uh, assigned raw materials for the production of their product. It was all centralized at a certain point. And Temla, all the way to the end of the war, received those raw materials that they needed to, pro to produce pervitin. The other danger, of course, was bombing from the air by the, by the British. And um, we can see that in December 1944, the Merck company in Darmstadt was severely damaged. And they were the manufacturers of Oikodal, which is the half-synthetic opioid that Hitler really enjoyed. So we can see that after that bombing, apparently uh, supplies seem to, to be hard to come by because Theo Morel, Hitler's physician, is not giving him a lot of Oikodal after that bombing anymore. Okay, I mean, mo moving on to Hitler... Um you you make the quite a startling revelation in the book that that by late 1944 he he was a class A drug addict, which is very um, at odds with the the kind of the the symbol of German purity that he was made out to be. You know, a teetotaler, even drink coffee. Um, you know, how did you come to to this conclusion? We have to understand that Nazi propaganda is very effective. So when the bomb exploded in Hitler's headquarters on July 20th, 1944 no more images of Hitler were being released to the public. The only image that got out is actually on the cover of Blitz. And we, we can clearly see that Hitler, uh, even just looking at the image uh, during those last months of the war, uh, was, was a, basically was a physical and psychological wreck, or at least a physical wreck. Um, but what is, what is, what is much more uh, um, obvious is are the, are the notes that the doctors took and that are available in the archives, uh, which uh, describe uh, day by day uh, the medication that Hitler received. And for example, after the bomb attack by Stauffenberg, and one can consider this interesting or severe or not relevant at all, uh, a new doctor comes into headquarters and he gives uh, Hitler cocaine and quite a strong 10% uh, pure solution of cocaine, which is supposed to it is an anesthesia that he uses because Hitler's eardrums were blown um, from the bomb attack. He was actually quite severely injured, but Nazi propaganda showed claim to the outside world: the Führer is not injured; it's a miracle. The Führer cannot be injured. So this it was used in that in that way, but actually he was quite injured and he was was feeling really bad. And um, so the cocaine was used to numb his pain, but also uh, Dr. Giesing, he was the doctor that came in with the cocaine, uh, uh, a throat, ear, nose specialist. Um, he realized quickly that Hitler demanded the cocaine also to boost his mood and uh, to be able to not fall into the deepest paranoia and depression, but to be able to kind of keep uh, his spirits up and uh, meet uh, his... Uh, couple of dozen uh, skeptical generals in the military briefing who basically told them that the war uh, for Germany uh, is not looking all too good and perhaps they have to change tactics, uh, something which Hitler really 
didn't like and didn't allow all the way to the end. So we can see after the bomb attack, we can. The thesis that I uh, described in Blitz is that Stauffenberg wasn't able to kill Hitler, but he was he was certainly able to turn him into a drug addict because, in addition to the cocaine he receives from Giesing, he still has his daily uh, visits with his own. Uh, personal physician Morel, uh, who has who was his personal physician since 1936. So Morel is also he's seeing two doctors uh, during that time, and Morel during those last months of 1944 um, likes to give him oikodal, a half synthetic opiate, which is uh, stronger than heroin and which which has a strong um, pot- uh, potential to make you euphoric, or it it just makes you euphoric. Uh, you, it numbs your pain and makes you euphoric. This in combination with the cocaine, sometimes only separated by a few hours, creates a speedball effect, which I suppose is the strongest drug effect uh, a human being can can go for. So uh, uh, we, we can see pretty clearly that Hitler, in those decisive months uh, of the second half of 1944, uh, did not uh, enjoy a sober day, but in fact enjoyed a very, uh, very high states of, of intoxication. And what sort of impact, I mean, do you think this had on, on his sort of decision-making? I think it had a uh, terrible uh, impact. I mean, f- I spoke with uh, Anthony Beaver about this, and he says that the plans by the British intelligence to assassinate Hitler were dropped in 1944 because um, British intelligence realized uh, decision-making of the so-called Führer it's not very good anymore, so it might even be better for the for the Allied war effort to keep this slightly deranged Hitler in place instead of uh, maybe taking him out and having uh, maybe a new rational thinking uh, leader of the German uh, Nazi war effort. For example, Albert Speer, he might be he might have been a much more dangerous um, enemy. I mean, you use one example in the book um, when Hitler. Was was given Eucadal before a meeting with Mussolini, um, and you, you you say that the, the effects of the drug were very apparent. What 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 could what was you know what happened during that meeting? The first time Hitler took Eucadal was in July 1943. He had a meeting scheduled with Mussolini, who apparently wanted to leave the war effort um, with Italy, and um, Hitler was very nervous before that meeting and. Um, felt very bad and um, said he was suffering from pain in his stomach and he couldn't go and he was basically whining um, and his whole entourage uh, was was very nervous uh, because Führer wouldn't move to the meeting. Um, Morel on that day for the first time injected uh, Oikodal subcutaneously uh, and um, minutes later Hitler was in such good spirits that it wasn't the question that he wouldn't that, that he would not go to that meeting. Obviously, he would go, and on the way to the plane, he requested the second injection of Oikodal, which this time was given intravenously. Then we have the meeting, and this is all uh, written down in, in Morel's notes in, in, in vivid detail with the date and the time and the, the circumstances and uh, the, the, the comments by Hitler and, and, and what was going on. So it's 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 quite vivid description. And um, there's also very vivid descriptions of the meeting that then took place. So uh, Mussolini was just sitting uh, on his chair, on the edge of his chair, uh, sweating, uh, uh, not being able to utter one word because Hitler had a, in German, we say Laberflash, which would be like talking frenzy or something, uh, which Hitler was was famous for in general. But I, I guess on Yukodal, it was absolutely uh 
impossible for anyone else in the room, including uh, the leader of Italy, who was his ally, uh, to utter one word of criticism or to to say, uh, I want to leave the war effort, which is a difficult thing to say, I suppose, when you're in a room with a totally drugged Hitler. So... Um, uh, there were reports later by, by different people of that meeting, all kind of nearly, uh, well, baffled at, at Hitler's rhetoric uh, skills, which uh, I guess were nearly embarrassing. And um, also there's a report by U.S. intelligence about that meeting, uh, re, uh, kind of um, suspecting that Hitler was on something because his behavior was so unnatural. And then Morel writes in his own notes in the evening, that Hitler came to him totally happy that uh, uh, Mussolini didn't leave the war effort and saying to Morel, his doctor, that the success of that day is is totally up to, is, is totally uh, the doctor's success. And Morel was very proud to note that. I mean, Morel himself is, a, is an interesting character, isn't he? I mean, it, it seems that Hitler was almost a, a type of guinea pig for, for some, of, some of these drugs because it wasn't just, um, you know, cocaine and, and methamphetamines that, that he was taking, was it? Morel was a very uh, adventurous doctor and he even manufactured his own preparations. His specialty were hormone preparation, uh, preparations, steroids. Um, um, at one point when Germany had occupied the Ukraine, uh, Morel actually received the monopoly on all the organs of all the slaughtered animals of all the slaughterhouses in the Ukraine. This was officially uh, decreed, um, and um, um, Wehrmacht trains, which usually should have been used to transport back the wounded, uh, were being used to transport back um, to uh, Morel's factory these uh, organs from these slaughtered animals so Morel could manufacture um, his preparations. Um, the only problem for him was that in 1943, in the war economy of Germany, new preparations weren't allowed on the market because the testing circles were not in place at that time. So, um, But he was still inventing new things all the time, and he wanted to put them on the market because he was very interested in making lot, lots of money. Um, so the idea that he had was that he would give his new preparations, for example, a heart muscle juice from pigs uh, that he was sure would uh, boost a person's immune system and was absolutely necessary for the German war effort. He would speak with Hitler about this and Hitler would totally agree that these um, preparations, which Hitler called, um, Hitler called it avant-garde, but he said uh, history will prove a moral right. So Hitler would agree or would, would actually request those medications being, being uh, pumped into his system. And then um, there's a letter that I found in the United States archives in Washington, where, where Hitler then writes uh, to the to the to the office that is responsible for allowing new medications that I, the Führer, has uh, approved of that medication personally uh, has, uh, has 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 experienced that this medication is good not only for the Führer, but then obviously for the whole population and for the German army. This is the Führer as a guinea pig. Mm. And do we know what what effect that experimentation had on him? Well, we can see it had a very bad effect. And um, if uh, a doctor today wouldn't act like that, it's not a responsible um, behavior by a physician. It is actually quite uh, quite incredible that a physician would do that to a very important patient. And patient A, as Hitler was called, was obviously a very important patient. Morel just had no clue of 
the effects of different drugs taken by a human system at the same time. That He did not do enough research. He kind of risked things. But it wasn't only him that risked it. In, in a way, Hitler risked it. He wanted to do, he wanted to be perfectly healthy at all times, which is impossible because the human body sometimes does get ill, but Hitler didn't want to allow illness because he's obviously a superhuman. So um, he's he's going on, he's sliding on that path, uh, he's sliding downhill because if you take all these mixed hormonal products, the body might react with an auto-immunological deficiency or reaction, which then can lead to uh, severe illnesses, for example, Parkinson's. There was always the there is the rumor that Hitler suffered from Parkinson's. This can be triggered by something like the uh, polytoxicomanic uh, medications given by Morel. Is there a point um, in the war that you can you can sort of say from your research that Hitler's drug use stopped? Being perhaps a, a, a positive thing, so you have the like you say you have the the German advance in 1940, um, and then it kind of flipped and became a negative force um, in the campaign. Well, the German army, the Wehrmacht, was still successfully applying uh, methamphetamine. Hitler was not taking any was not taking any drugs. He was taking uh, vitamins and glucose also injected into the vein in high dosages, which obviously is weird, but I wouldn't really call it a drug. Maybe it's even healthy. Uh, I, 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 won't, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but some doctors do apply vitamin injections. So in the beginning of the war, Hitler was somewhat healthy and the German army was somewhat successfully using uh, the methamphetamine. So we can see that up until 1941, uh, the drug policy of Nazi Germany somehow has good effects for the German war effort. But uh, in the war against the Soviet Union, the methamphetamine does not really work for the Wehrmacht anymore because it's a long war and it doesn't work as a blitzkrieg and it, it doesn't help anymore not to sleep because you need to sleep. You need to have kind of a, a natural, strong rhythm over a long period of time. Methamphetamine doesn't help you with that at all. And uh, we can also see that then Hitler's drug intake starts because he starts using the steroids and the doping uh, agents um, in the fall of 1941, and it gets more and more, more and more crazy in a way, and uh, certainly not to his advantage. Mm. I mean, it's it's clear you've, you've studied a lot of sources, um, original sources in in, in the book. Um, I mean, Hitler's drug use has been written about by other historians in the past. What what's sort of new in your book? What's the new angle that that you're that you think you can bring to our understanding of the Second World War through through Hitler's drug use? There has been reports um, about um, Morel's excessive use of syringes and giving injections, but no one so far has really examined what is in those injections and what effects do these drugs have. There have been um, sayings like, "Oh yeah." Morel gave him a lot of different medications and maybe that wasn't so good for Hitler. But that that's basically it. Uh, and let's examine uh, day by day detail, de- uh, in, in detail, what was given, how did this affect certain uh, decisions that were taken in the Second World War. Um, I describe um, what, does, what does it mean to use oikodal Every other day in a dosage of 20 milligrams intravenously, that has never been examined. I think with drugs, you have to be very precise because drugs are not 
equals drugs and different dosages. I mean, you can take oikodal in a pill. It's called oxycodone. You can you can get it from your doctor in the United States, probably also in Great Britain, and swallow it. It's a small. It's a in a low uh, dosage. It it might just calm you a little bit. But if you take that in a high dosage, shot it shot up into your vein, you will have a very uh, a psychoactive effect. And um, if you talk about drugs and then Hitler or drugs and uh, national socialism, you have to be careful and you have to 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 really go into detail and become very accurate about it and that this has never been done before. And would you say that Hitler's drug use prolonged the war? Do you think the war would have would have finished a lot earlier had he not been a drug addict? It's very difficult to imagine what would have happened without drugs because the drugs were an important factor. Um, I think it's a, it is speculation, but um, it, we can see that Hitler did not take drugs to change. He he was he did not change because he used drugs. Uh, there's no rational Hitler that suddenly takes drugs and becomes uh, and turns into a completely different human being. Hitler used drugs to keep his tunnel vision and to to, to stay on track. And this staying on track at one point became a problem for the Nazi war effort because staying on track meant uh, the downfall and meant uh, total defeat. So Hitler uses the drugs, and I'm sure he does this unconsciously. He didn't say to Murat, give me drugs, I have to stay euphoric in order to convince the generals. This is this works on a different level of consciousness. But Hitler used this drug to, to remain convincing. And um, there is there, there there's many reports of generals after important military briefings who say, I just don't understand the Führer. He knows something that we don't know. He might have a secret wonder weapon up his sleeve that he cannot talk about. He's so convinced uh, that we will win the war. And 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 in the in the end, they 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 followed their Führer. They were not able to uh, talk sense into the man. Um, so I think yes, the drugs did prolong the war effort. And I think yes, that did the drugs. Uh, especially uh, prolonged the, these last, uh, I mean, made these last nine months of the war so bloody and so terrible for so many people. Um, but then again, the drugs are not an excuse. Um, they do not lessen any responsibility of these Nazi leaders because these Nazi leaders, including, of course, Hitler, uh, had their evil goals set from the beginning and that they used drugs in the end to still keep able to be able to keep going does not in any way uh, this does not in any way lessen their, their responsibility for their crimes. That was Norman Orler. Blitzed, Drugs in Nazi Germany, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. In the US, it's due to be published next spring by Houghton, Mifflin, Harcourt. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. A hoard of Anglo-Saxon artefacts has been found by a metal detectorist in a potato field in Lincolnshire. The objects, which were discovered in a burial mound, include bronze bowls, iron weaponry and a gold pendant thought to be worth more than £50,000. Dr Adam Daubney from Lincolnshire County Council called the hoard a once-in-a-lifetime discovery, stating that it dates back to the 7th century and is believed to have belonged to a high-status figure. This form of burial is a powerful display of status, he told the BBC. Not only was the individual being buried with a large amount of wealth, the burial mound also became a permanent feature in the landscape. In other news, 
evidence of the oldest known human settlement in the Australian interior may have been discovered. Excavations of a rock shelter have uncovered signs of human activity, thought to date from up to 49,000 years ago, including burnt eggshells, stone tools and red ochre pigment. Researchers have suggested that this evidence indicates Aboriginal people were in the area 10,000 years earlier than previously thought. The discovery was made by Aboriginal elder Clifford Coulthard, who stumbled across the site while looking for a place to go to the toilet during a car journey. Archaeologist Giles Ham has described it as one of the most important sites in Australian prehistory, suggesting it has smashed several paradigms about Indigenous Australians. However, other academics have expressed reservations about the findings. Professor of Australian Archaeology Peter Hiscock told The Guardian, The dates are deeply anomalous. They either stem from an analytical problem or else reveal a revolutionary shift in the chronology for ancient Australia. Just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for this year's History Weekend in York are still on sale. It takes place from the 18th to 20th of this month, and the speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, including Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Simon Sebag Montefiore, and David Olashoga. You can find out more details and purchase tickets now at historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for this episode, but please do listen in next week when we'll be talking about Soviet science and food in the Second World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.